Hello, hello. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, I love you. <clears throat> uh, I want to thank Josh for asking me to preach today. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I talked to Josh last Saturday. Um, still not on. I mean, I can yell. Yeah. Where's Kale here? I bet you can hear something. <laughs> Try that. Hello? There it is. There we go. All right, if you didn't hear me, I love you. Um, so I talked to Josh last Saturday, um, and if you didn't know this, Josh was like really sick, like really sick. I won't go into details, but, um, but really sick, but thankfully, uh, Sunday morning, the God, or God gave him, uh, about a three hour window and he was able to bring, uh, a great message about the quiet, meek servant of the Lord who will one day return like a mighty man. Um, shouting and showing himself mighty against his foes. And we all sing for joy on that day. So I just wanted to thank God for last week and, and that message real quick. Okay, now today's passage is kind of uh, long and pretty crazy. I think that's why Josh gave it to me. So um, I'm just going to give a quick overview of what happens in Matthew uh, chapter 12, 22 through 37. And then we'll go back and kind of zoom in um, and take a deeper look. So here's your Sparks Notes version. Um, your main characters are Jesus, a demon-possessed man, the cr- a crowd, um, and then a group of Pharisees. And I want to take a second and look at this specific group of Pharisees. Um, Mark tells us in the parallel passage that this group of Pharisees is actually the Pharisees from Jerusalem. Um, these are the guys that are in the seats of power. Um, that's important because the Pharisees in general get a really bad rap, especially us removed 2,000 years from this time. Um, but there are righteous Pharisees who are legitimately trying to follow the Lord. They're legitimately trying to shepherd the flock. Um, but as we'll see today, these are Pharisees. The Pharisees in this passage are not doing that. Um, so that's just important. All right, so now let's look at the plot. Um, the passage starts with people bringing Jesus, a demon-possessed man who's blind and mute. Jesus promptly heals him, you know, Messiah stuff. And people start to wonder if this means if Jesus is the God. The Pharisees do not like the crowd thinking this. Um, And they accuse Jesus of maybe being a demon himself or working for a demon. Um, But Jesus knows they're saying and thinking and essentially just lays the hammer down on them over and over and over. Um, In his rebuff of them, he gives them a few reasons as to why what they're saying is ridiculous. Um, He also goes further and lets them know that the fact they're saying those things says a lot about where their hearts are. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're knowingly and deliberately attributing God's works to Satan. And that does not bode well for them. Essentially, evil hearts at the end of the age is bad news. Bad news. Okay? It's pretty simple. The passage ends with Jesus rebuking them and reminding us again like he has over and over and over, you're going to answer for your fruit. Your words and your deeds reflect your heart. He's saying, check your heart, because the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, well, I guess we can go home now. 
Good job, Chanel. <laughs> um, so if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew 12, 22, um, and we'll get into it. So, Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? So again, Jesus heals again by casting out another demon. And now the crowds are shouting, Could this be the son of David? Could this be the long-promised Messiah? Now this isn't the the, the Psalm Sunday declaration where the crowds are ushering Jesus in uh, to the city, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So they aren't declaring him the Messiah right now. But I do think this response from the crowd shows us something about their hearts. They recognize that Jesus is doing a bunch of Messiah-like stuff. And and they're at least open to the idea of of him being the promised son of David. Even if he's just a lowly stonecutter's son from Nazareth, from that backwater town. Um, They're looking at the evidence. They're looking at his works, what's actually happening. Of actual people getting released from demons. Of actual withered hands being straightened. Of paralytics scooping up their mat and running home. Of a measly portion of bread and fish somehow feeding thousands. And the crowds are working their way, slowly they're working their way towards praising him as the Messiah when he enters Jerusalem. The crowd's response gives us a little glimpse into their hearts. And in the same way, the Pharisees' response here will show us what's in their hearts. They see a man casting out demons, healing people, and they have a slightly different take. So in 1224, when the Pharisees heard this, and what did they hear? They heard the crowd's response. The proclamation that this might be the son of David. They see the crowd moving away from them, from their influence. They say this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So this is important. I do not think the Jerusalem Pharisees, I don't think they actually thought that Jesus was affiliated with demons in any way. It's not a case of mistaken identity. Matthew literally, right before this, just told us what these Pharisees were up to. In chapter 12, 14 from last week, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Why were they plotting to kill him? Because Jesus healed a man's hand on the Sabbath. Now, I don't think it's even really because he healed a man on the, on the Sabbath. I think it's because he's embarrassing them. He's... He's uh, showing that he has a greater authority than, than them, um, and they are jealous and, and other things. But, so, they aren't interested in looking at the evidence anymore. These Pharisees, these scribes and scholars, who probably know most of the prophetic um, literature and Torah by heart, they can probably quote most of it from memory, they see a man doing great works, and instead of celebrating are jealous and embarrassed and see their authority and influence slipping away. They are hardening their hearts. They should be the ones looking at Jesus is doing and shouting, this is obviously a man of God. Praise be to God. That's what they should be doing. But instead, they see their power and influence over the people faltering. The crowd is turning to Jesus. This group of Pharisees is in love with the wealth and prestige and influence they have in this age. And so they accuse Jesus, the promised king of Israel, the Lamb of God, of being in cahoots with Beelzebul, the Canaanite god Baal, 
the ruler of demons. They've hardened their hearts so much that they are attributing the healing and release of their brother from despair. They're, they're carelessly attributing this wonderful act to the ruler of demons. They were true shepherds, true servants, truly after God's heart. They would have at very least be rejoicing at the deliverance of their brother. But instead, all they can do is slander Jesus. Their response here is a clear picture of their outright rejection of Jesus and his message. And Jesus sees this and he responds in Matthew 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So Jesus is just pointing out how ridiculous their statements are. They're not even logical. They're, they're just making stuff up. Why would Satan cast himself out? And not only do their accusations not make sense, but the Pharisees' own followers have also been known to cast out demons. Now, not like Jesus with authority where he just speaks a word and poof, the demon goes. There's a ritual to it and stuff. And they're not, I mean, God's the one casting the demon out. But they're doing it, okay? And he says, you don't accuse them of working with Satan. For this reason, he says, your followers, those guys who are below you, Far from your precious seat of power, those actually tending to God's flock, they will be witnesses against you when things are reversed. When the first will be last, and the last will be first at the end of the age. He goes on in verse 28, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus continues talking about the end of the age here. He says, guys, if what I'm saying is true, if you Pharisees are wrong, and I actually am Casting this demon out by the power of God, the end of this age and the day of the Lord are not going to go well for you. It's essentially a warning. Flee the wrath to come. Now, I know we Christians are conditioned to see the kingdom of God and the day of the Lord as a positive thing. And it absolutely is. For the believer, it's our only hope. But if you have an unrepentant heart, it doesn't go, it doesn't go well. So when Jesus uses the phrase, come upon you, he's referencing some pretty scary passages in the scriptures. So in Deuteronomy 28, 45, all these curses will come upon you. Zephaniah 2, 2, before the appointed time arrives, that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains, come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So I just referenced those things because I've heard this verse taken out of context before and spun as a celebration of the kingdom type thing, but I don't think that's how Jesus means it uh, in this passage. To me, it's clear that this whole passage is basically saying... One of us is right, the other is very, very wrong, and there are eternal consequences. Okay, so verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. Okay, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time here, um, because this verse is pretty crazy, and I'm not sure I'm 
100% on it. But uh, in the context of, of what we've been talking about, verse 29 again shows what Jesus is really upset about. He's saying again, in order for demons to be cast out, the caster has to have power and authority over the demon. And isn't it obvious that you don't plunder someone's house if you are in league with them? You don't rob your friend's house. How am I working with Satan if I'm plundering his, his minions, his house? You rob your enemy's house. Jesus is saying that he knows the Pharisees don't really believe what they themselves are saying because their, their argument is just illogical. They are lying to their followers in an effort to get the glory in this age. And that's when Jesus really brings the thunder. In 29, Jesus points out their lie again. Man, that was awesome. Look at that. (laughs) Maybe I was right about that. (laughs) Okay, so then in 30, he shows them what that means. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather me scatters. So gathering and scattering. This verse is powerful because it hits on multiple levels. We're going to touch on two of them here. There's the simple, you're either on my side or you're not which is potent unto itself. Jesus is God's anointed one, the Jewish Messiah, Messiah, and he will gather all peoples to himself. And you are either on his side or you're cast out. It's, it's plain. There's not a neutral position when it comes to Jesus. You can't ride the fence. But the awesome thing is that this verse also alludes to a deeper meaning that would have been, I think, very clear to its original hearers. I think Jesus is using gather and scatter intentionally. This is a specific word choice that would trigger in the minds of his audience, especially the Pharisees, specific passages from the prophets. Like Jeremiah 23, 1 through 4 and and on. It says, Woe to you shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the shepherds who tend my people. You have scattered my flock, banished them, and have not attended to them. I am about to attend to you because of your evil acts. This is the Lord's declaration. So this is genius. Jesus is the master. (laughs) With this gathering and scattering line, Jesus is plainly telling the Pharisees, Listen, you think you are the good shepherds, but you're actually the evil shepherds that scatter the flock. And you will be dealt with. And the next section of Jeremiah 23 explains who the good shepherd is. It says, I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands where I have banished them, and I will return them to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. I will raise up shepherds over them who will tend them. They will no longer be afraid or discouraged, nor will any be missing. This is the Lord's declaration. Look, the days are coming. This is... This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Again, this echoes back to the crowd's response. Could this be the son of David at the beginning of the passage? It's like Jesus, with his one line about gathering and scattering, is both condemning the Pharisees for their hard-hearted, evil response, and answering the crowd with a big, yes, 
I am the promised son of David. I am the good shepherd. I may be, maybe I'm reading uh, too deep into it, but we got to read Jeremiah 23, which is pretty awesome. It's no Isaiah 25, but it'll do. Okay, back to Matthew. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. So here it is, the unforgivable sin. Dun, dun, dun. So the first time I read this passage, passage, I read unforgivable sin and got both worried and confused. You hear the word unforgivable, and you tend to think one and done terms, like a technical foul that, that you get thrown out of the game for immediately, right? Like targeting in football. If you don't know what that is, watch, watch a football game with someone who does, and they'll probably yell and scream about it. So. Um, but that's not what this is talking about. You can't accidentally commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You can't, out of ignorance or unintentionally, blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is seeing the works of God, knowing that they come from God, and still willfully rejecting the truth. It's an act of defiance up until the end of the age, whether that be the end of your life or the day of the Lord when our Lord returns. I think due to the way the sentence is structured, we think Jesus is saying this is a, a, a solitary act called blasphemy against the Spirit. And if you have ever done it, you can't be forgiven. It's beyond um, forgivable. But again, let me be clear, this is not what it is. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a state of your heart. It is willfully denying the truth. It's willfully rejecting God. A hardened, prideful, self-righteous heart will absolutely not be forgiven at the day of the Lord. Jesus sees how the Pharisees have hardened their hearts and recognizes their stubbornness. They're not going to repent. If they did, they would be forgiven. See Paul, right? The Pharisee of Pharisees. But they won't. Their careless accusation, their unrighteous response, it's a testimony to the state of their hearts. Jesus lays this out plainly in the last section of today's passage. He says in 33, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So that's intense. Up until this point, we Gentiles have felt a nice cushion from the butt-chewing the Pharisees are getting. But here we, get all, we all get lumped together. At the end, he doesn't say, you Pharisees will have to give an account for, for every careless word you spoke. No, he says, all people. What Jesus is doing here is getting at the heart of things, literally. And it's not new. Jesus has been saying this over and over and over and over and over at this point. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. It all comes down to what is in your heart. Uh, Robert, could you come help me? Thank you. So here Jesus is tying your heart to your mouth clearly. What comes out of your heart 
or what comes out of your mouth is evidence. It's testimony of what is in your heart. And this is scary, because I don't know about you, but I say careless and cruel things most days. Um, when the weight of this age and the pressures of, of life, they get to us, we lash out at our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, our children, even God. But that's because we have sinful hearts. No one is righteous but Jesus. And thankfully, God sends his spirit and convicts us of our careless words, of our sinful hearts. And Lord willing, when we are confronted by the Holy Spirit, we don't harden our hearts. No, we humble ourselves and we kneel at the foot of the cross and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we do that, it actually works. We put our faith in Jesus' atoning work on the cross, and it is counted unto us as righteousness. And we ask our loved ones to forgive us, forgive us for our careless words, and we pray that God's Spirit would bear fruit in our lives and give us patience and kindness and self-control and endurance. And we just run that play again and again, day after day, morning after morning, night after night, until the end of the age and the return of our Lord. In closing, I want to plead with anyone here today that hasn't yet dealt with who Jesus is, who hasn't proclaimed Him King and Lord, who hasn't acknowledged their sin and put their faith in the cross. Don't leave here today without taking that first step. Talk to somebody. Talk to me, talk to Josh, talk to an elder, talk to any member of the church, email someone, talk to someone from the Baptist church, but do something, reach out, take that step, don't go on, don't, don't go on uh, not dealing with who Jesus is. Okay, would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you that that you will forgive every sin. That there's nothing we could do that that would separate us from you for eternity if we come to you with a contrite and repentant heart. Thank you for your atoning work on the cross that, that we won't stand before you according to our own works. But that you will count to us Jesus' works. Jesus' life, his faithfulness. You'll count that unto us is righteousness. I pray that, that today's passage would, wouldn't confuse or wouldn't confuse anyone that, that the plain meaning that, that the day of the Lord is real, that it's coming, that we have to deal with, with who Jesus is, that he's the promised Messiah, and he will rid the world of righteousness or rid the world of unrighteousness. And we long for that day that we put our hope in it. And we just repent again for our careless words. And we pray that that your spirit would change our hearts in this age. That you would bring about patience and kindness. And that that would overflow out of our mouths. 
Thank you again, Lord, for allowing us to gather here and, and read your word and, and look at it and study it. In your name we pray. Amen.